0: It is a great joy to welcome new members into our community. We're so happy to have you. And I'll remind all the rest of us once again that we were all newcomers on one day. We walked in here. We didn't necessarily know what it would be like. What are those Universalist Unitarians like? We didn't know what To expect, we didn't know if this community would be welcoming, we might have been concerned that some people would be accepted and others would not. These are not idle thoughts or paranoia. Throughout human history, it has been very common that some people are the in people and some people are the out people. That has been a very, very common part of human behavior since we know about human beings. We as human beings have a tendency to go in that direction. uh, There was a professor that Diane had in seminary and he called it malignant tribalism. Malignant. had a southern accent too. Malignant tribalism. So... During our long history, we have often conquered each other, oppressed each other, made war on each other, and killed each other as well. The two heartbreaking incidents of bombing in Istanbul and Cairo, just in the last two and a half days, or whatever it has been, is an example of that tendency of human beings to get involved in in this kind of uh, violence. It saddens our hearts. Our Unitarian Universalist tradition has always been anchored in a different vision of the world. And by the way, when I say that, I don't mean to imply that other visions are also anchored in a different vision of the world because there are many organizations working for peace. And we want to be part of that network. But I'm thinking today of some things in Unitarian and Universalist tradition which we can lift up. One of them is in... Uh, The 1500s when King John Sigismund of Transylvania issued the Edict of Toleration saying that in the kingdom of Transylvania everyone was free to worship as their heart and mind led them without fear of persecution. This was the first instance where a government issued a statement saying that people were free to worship as they pleased. In our universalist tradition, there is this long and honorable uh, argument that people have made that a loving God could not send anyone to eternal punishment. That's the universalist argument in a nutshell. Although it gets lots more complex and we could go off in different ways, but the argument is that a loving God would not send anyone to an eternal punishment without any hope of release. No reprieve, no pardon, no parole, no counseling, no time off for good behavior, no reparations, no second chance, just torment forever. And so universalists took the point of view that that was not consistent with love. That it was impossible to conceive of that being done in love. I think that's a good argument myself. Although I will tell you that there are some theologians who do argue that hell can be loving. (laughs) I see skepticism on your faces. What are you, some kind of universalist? Uh, I can lend you the books if you want, but it's not light reading. Uh, But it is a hot topic. That one just popped out. I don't know. (laughs) There's a great collective unconscious somewhere with all those kinds of lines floating around and one just pops up. So that was the universalist idea that there can't be hell and a loving deity. And so whether one takes this statement literally, and by the way, I want to tell you, as I mentioned before, that Many times in my time in this church, families have come to me and told me that their kids were being told they're going to hell for going to this church. That is just so absurd. But so in some cases, this is an actual discussion that's going on. But if we don't take it literally and we take it more symbolically, then it's about standing for love. It's about giving priority to love. And making that our way of life. So, whether you take it literally or symbolically, I think the Universalists got it right. I would rather stand on the side of love. So, there is a, in our tradition this idea of some kind of great reconciliation or a great inclusive community where all are accepted and none are rejected. That's the vision, you know, that we're going to sit at the welcome table where everyone will be invited and no one will be rejected. We won't check anybody's papers. No one is barred from the warmth of the community. It's a beautiful vision, I think. And once again, other traditions have this vision too. I want to acknowledge that, but I'm just lifting up the particular way we look at it this morning. I don't know if it's likely that we will actually... Have this vision completed on earth so that it's all a big peaceful society. But what I would argue is that it has great value as a direction, as a guide to where we should be going. It points us in the right way. It doesn't mean that we're actually going to get there on July 22nd but it means that every day this is a good direction to have. It makes a radical difference in the quality of our our life if when we meet another person, we view that person as a member of a great cosmic community that will all ultimately be reconciled with each other, at least in some ideal place. Or on the other hand, if we meet the other person and immediately wonder if that's a dangerous person or we see the other as an enemy with whom we will never be reconciled. We can't possibly be reconciled because of who we are and who they are. With whom we might fall into serious conflict that we must either conquer, enslave, control or be controlled by them. This is a... Attention that's in our society right now, whether there are peoples in the society who can ever possibly be reconciled, or maybe they can't. The Dalai Lama writes that whenever he meets anyone in the world, he sees that other person as a being who is seeking happiness. That's his reality. Every person in the world, he says, that he meets, he looks at that as a being who is seeking happiness. So in that sense, for him, everyone is radically the same. It's a huge similarity that everyone has, regardless of their nationality or language or gender Ethnicity or political affiliation or their age or whether they're well or ill, a being who is seeking happiness. So, would that change the way we approach everyone if we looked at it that way? If every time I met someone, I saw not a poor person or a rich person or an old person or a young person or a Muslim or a Jew, or even a Democrat or a Republican, but a creature who wants to be happy. Did I cross the line there? (laughs) So now we can sort of see how difficult this might be. Perhaps some things just cannot be reconciled. Maybe the Muslims are okay. Yeah, yeah, they're okay. How about indigenous people? Yeah, they're good. They're fine people. How about LGBTQ people? Yeah, that's good. That's wonderful. But that guy over there? Never. Never. That guy, whoever that guy might be in our world, I could predict with some accuracy some of those people... That is beyond comprehension. No, nope, that that can't be. So, that in a way is why we have hell. Because we have to have some place to imagine those people getting what they deserve. <laughs> Damn it. <clears throat> a place to send our enemies. <laughs> Hasta luego. (laughs) So universalism universalism really is a radical idea. And as Martin Luther King talked about it, the love that he thought had power in the universe, he said, this is not a sentimental kind of love. This is not a a mushy, blissy love. This is a deep, reconciling, transforming love. If anyone would have had a reason to believe that some people are just evil racists and there's no hope for such vile creatures, it would have been Martin Luther King who had a good reason to believe that. A person who was reviled, spat on, arrested, harassed, bombed, threatened, attacked, and ultimately assassinated. Surely those racists deserve to burn in hell. And yet, King did not take that point of view. He believed that through nonviolent activism, the heart of the racist could be changed. That those people were going to change their minds. The racists were sort of like Scrooge, you know—a mean, selfish, hardened soul, seemingly beyond any kind of repair. And yet, somehow, a reawakening, a rebirth of compassion took place. King did not even say that the cops beating up the marchers on the Pettus Bridge would go to hell. He said their hearts would be changed. And that's what would make the difference. They could eventually see the truth. (gasps) Now, one does not want to be overly naive about this worldview, and King knew that this was not likely to happen very soon. Certainly not by the end of that day. He was not a fool. But this long range vision, which I believe, by the way, is a universalist vision, I don't want to tell Martin Luther King what his theology is, but I just think it's a universalist friendly vision. Gave his work a shape. For without this vision of possibility of reconciliation somewhere, then conflict is just war. It's just mean, old, vicious, crippling, murderous war. Like we have done for millennia. The Christmas story also contains these symbols of reconciliation. By the way, in history of New England, it was the Universalists, some of the Universalists, who argued the most for celebrating Christmas. And some of the other faiths said, no, we shouldn't be out partying like that, and people are gonna drink alcoholic beverages. But the Universalists like Christmas, and I think it's partly because there is some of this kind of symbolism in the story. The stable brings together the rich and the poor one of the huge separations in our society, it brings together the animals and the humans staying in the place that is set up for the animals. It also brings together the local people and the strangers from another country who were almost undoubtedly of a different religion. Those folks came from a long ways away. I don't know what they were, maybe Zoroastrians or something, but they They were different. And so these people all come together. Why is that crash scene so unbelievably common and it's everywhere and it's partly because it has this vision of unity about it? Everybody's together and they're all in awe of something greater than any of them, some kind of a unity. This baby is going to be the prince of peace, the prophet of love, the healer, the transformer. Now, later on, this baby is going to get tied into the judgment story. But that's not in Christmas. That's not the Christmas story. There's no judgment in the Christmas story. It's peace on earth. Goodwill to everyone. Goodwill to everyone. When we go carol at the home, we don't go up to them and ask them what their theology is. We don't even ask them who they voted for. Maybe we wouldn't feel like singing after that. You did what? But that's not the spirit of Christmas. Everyone gets to hear the music. It's peace on earth. It's goodwill. The light shines on everyone. The local shepherds and the visitors from faraway countries, the animals... Even the innkeeper who didn't have any room for them, the sun is going to shine for the innkeeper too. When the light comes, it lights up everything. It doesn't ask who deserves it. When the solstice brings light and healing warmth back to the earth, everything gets rejuvenated. Everything. It's not about who deserves it. The sun is a universalist. I can't actually prove that theologically, but I'm trying to say there's a similarity. Right now, we are having a hard time as a people. We are extraordinarily divided. I I feel it more intensely than I have in a long, long time. Some of us feel deeply wounded and worried and not in a charitable mood toward those on the other side. But people like the Dalai Lama and Martin Luther King don't see it that way. We can see that somehow some people have been able to keep seeing their neighbors as having intrinsic worth, as in the reading that Barb did just a little while ago, that every person has this intrinsic worth and dignity, even in the midst of deep divisions. Everyone is looking for some kind of happiness, even if some of us are sometimes making a mess of that. Isn't there a country song like that, looking for love in all the wrong places? Well, that's what the Dalai Lama's talking about. So in our tradition, at least for most of us, we do not buy the idea of a final judgment where some go to eternal bliss and others go to eternal pain. Judgment is not our thing. But that doesn't mean that we're not accountable for our actions. It doesn't mean that we can do anything we please and never face the consequences. We believe in consequences, but they're here and now consequences. There are consequences of racism. There are consequences of mistreatment of women or Muslims or native people. There are consequences of abusing the bounty of the earth. These things have effects. Injustice will lead to pain and suffering as it always does. We can stand up to injustice without believing that those who are caught up in its web are worthless and devoid of value. We can see these folks as blind, as infallible, as misled, and we can have the wisdom to know that sometimes we are deluded too. We don't have to send the oppressor to hell. We just have to get the oppressor the hell out of oppressing us. Those are not the same thing. There is a difference between condemnation and profound disagreement. Linda White, who just went to Standing Rock, and came back and said that there were times when the protesters prayed for the police. That's that, see that's 100% in on the justice issue, 100% in, out in the blizzard, and 100% in on those other people having value. That's keeping it 100 and keeping it 100. These law enforcement people didn't ask to be in that situation. They all have lives. They have mothers and fathers and partners and children. They're human beings who love and care. King said, we are bound together in an inescapable mutuality. We are going to have to make it together or perish as fools. One day in McDonald's, somewhere on the road between Madison and Peoria. I stopped at a McDonald's traveling back from a three-day retreat on evolution and religion. This retreat was led by Michael Dowd and Connie Barlow, who some of you know because they spoke here in this church about four years ago, and they are people who travel around the country talking about evolution as a spiritual reality. That's their point of view. So I've been with them for three days talking about evolution and, and spirituality. And as I sat in a McDonald's, perhaps one of the least likely places on earth to have a mystical experience. <laughs> there might be someplace more unlikely than that. So I just sat there and I began to see every person as a new experiment of evolution. Everyone, a different attempt to see what would work to bring happiness and satisfaction. So all these experiments sitting there and radically equal to each other because they all come from that same force, different sizes, shapes, colors, talents, ages, but all beings created by a cosmic creativity, an evolutionary art that just keeps trying new ideas, new forms, on and on and on and on, billions and billions of them. And all of us are expressions of that huge creativity. It's not that some of us are part of that and others are not. It's everybody. It's everybody on the planet and all the creatures on the planet. And for about 15 or 20 minutes, I just sat in McDonald's with my cup co- and I just saw everyone in that light. Such a wonderful feeling of appreciation. Well, when we're not having those kinds of experiences, which is most of the time, then these same ideas are encoded into myths and legends. That's how these ideas carry on, even when you're not having the experience, but there are stories about that. And human beings carry those stories around and tell them, and every once in a while they have big parties and celebrations and they put on hats because these old stories express these deepest longings that we have. And they're not just foolishness. They're about powerful realities in our world. So when the solstice sun returns, everyone gets new life. Everyone. There's no, there are no visas. There are no passports. It's everyone. Everyone. When a baby comes to bring peace on earth and goodwill, it's not just for straight, white, Protestant American males. It's everyone. It's peace on earth and goodwill to all. That's the encoded message. That there's this powerful force that is capable of bringing that. A prophet leads the people on a march across a bridge. Believing that even those who are beating them up can be transformed. Believing them. And we don't think he's out of his mind. We think he's a national hero. A holy man looks at every person in the world and says... Every single one of them is a being who wants to be happy. That's who they are. They're a being trying some way to see if that will make them happy. An old mean miser is transformed by his dreams or perhaps three spirits to totally change his life. The protesters pray for the police we are reconciled with our grouchy, rather mean uncle at the holiday dinner. Oh, come on, I'll give you a hug. Even that grouchy one. That's the reconciliation that is encoded into the stories. In the Hanukkah story, they think there's not enough oil for the for the temple to be set up in its proper way, but there is. That's the story. Yeah, it is possible. You think it's not possible, but it is. All is possible. All can be healed. The sun is coming back. Even this country, with its deep wounds, can be healed. That's what the stories say. That is the human story, and we are the characters in the story. Our role is to bring this longed for peace and justice to the earth. As well as we can contribute to that, that is our role in the story. May the hope of this possibility guide our path. I would like for us to sing a wonderful Christmas carol this morning. This is one of the traditional carols that you know. It came upon the Midnight Clear. This was written by a Unitarian minister. The words were named Edmund Hamilton Sears. It came upon the midnight clear, and you will hear what the words say. So I I encourage you to pay attention to the words that Reverend Sears wrote uh, about 150 years ago.